Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a Lip Media Podcast. The following podcast is produced on the lands of the Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation in Victoria, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands, pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello once again and welcome back to Bite Your Thumb, a podcast in which I will explore my complete disdain for what is arguably Shakespeare's most well-known play, Romeo and Juliet. Hopefully the jump here in audio quality is slightly noticeable. The first two episodes of this show were recorded on my dingy AF iPhone that just barely functions, so I thought I would treat myself by upgrading to my little NT-USB mini Rode microphone. Look, it makes me feel just a bit more legit, and I hope that when coronavirus exits stage left permanently and I can have boys in my bedroom again, they'll take a look at the microphone on my desk and either be mildly impressed or intimidated. So yeah, Rode, if you're listening, I am willing to negotiate how much I'm going to make from the sponsorship deal. I'm sure you're writing up just now, so I'll wait. (laughs) God, I wish that was true. Today's guest, look, I don't know how I managed to convince them to join me here, but it was such a treat. This NIDA graduate and accomplished theatre maker has lived and breathed Shakespeare since the late 90s. He was appointed as the co-artistic director of Bell Shakespeare in 2012, Australia's leading theatre company and educational resource dedicated to all things Shakespeare by founder John Bell. And then he went on to become the head artistic director in 2016. He even directed a production of R&J that same year, which we will be touching on later. Also, apologies in advance for the sketchy audio that might be here and there. We were on Zoom and the internet was just not being our friend that day. I just got a new modem and it works just as well as if I went outside holding a rock covered in wires over my head. Honestly, I'm kind of tempted to do that, just to piss off some of the Karens that might be lurking around my neighbourhood without their masks on. Get them to run away at the fear of 5G. (laughs) 
anyhow, whilst I sit here for the next 10,000 years waiting for the NBN to reach my suburb, please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Bal Shakespeare's artistic director, Peter Evans. All right, so yeah, thank you for joining me. So um, what I typically ask first is a bit of a controversial question given your position but I do have to ask and it probably answers itself if you like Romeo and Juliet or you dislike Romeo and Juliet (laughs) I like Romeo and Juliet oh what a shame (laughs) (laughs) um obviously aside from the fact that you um directed it um a few years ago which we'll touch on in a little bit what is it about that play that you like so much well likes probably the the wrong um it's too simple because I acknowledge that it's, it's hugely problematic. But, but those things, I think, are fascinating. I think it's interesting, the plot holes and the kind of ambiguous theme inside it. Those are things that I find fascinating rather... So, so I, don't think, I don't think about any of the plays in terms of liking or disliking because I find them kind of endlessly interesting. The thing about Romeo and Juliet is that it's so, it's so much kind of part of the culture that when you actually come to direct it it's sort of fascinating how generalized it's become that that people's kind of memories of it or their thoughts about it or the understanding of it is quite generalized and tends to just be romantic Mm. when the play is not romantic I don't think Uh, I think the play is an investigation of romance particularly in a literary sense. And Shakespeare throughout his plays is deeply critical of romance and deeply critical of people who are in love with the idea of love. It's something he, he, he thinks about a lot, particularly in the comedies. They, they, they often deal with that, particularly men. Mm. Um, men who love the idea of being in love is something he's deeply critical of. And in the comedies, these men tend to be rescued by the women who are more down to earth than the men. And so uh, Romeo and Juliet's interesting is because Romeo and Juliet is a comedy until people start dying. That structurally, mm. it's like a comedy. When, when he wrote Romeo and Juliet, there's only two tragedies in that period. All the rest of them are history plays and comedies. Romeo and Juliet is kind of an outlier. It's, it's Romeo and Juliet and Titus Andronicus. Both those tragedies are outliers in terms of Shakespeare's career. And the main tragedies, he doesn't get onto until about four years later. And then he kind of dedicates himself to tragedy for about six or seven years. And then he finishes his career making a whole bunch of... Um, really kind of genre bending plays that kind of are all about forgiveness. So I'm fascinated by Romeo and Juliet where it sits, but also because it's not it's not like the other tragedies because it's really a play about accidents. It doesn't have a kind of character with a fatal flaw or with or with someone whose 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 actions bring about their demise necessarily. It's actually a play in which a whole series of things just go badly. Mm. And I find that fascinating. I absolutely agree and when I did reread the play because the first time I read it I was a teenager and I just didn't like it at all and I was dedicated to disliking it never reading it again and and your reasons were what your reasons were why did you dislike it oh I just I was a very I was 15 years old I was in high school and I just thought oh this is stupid who falls in love in a day I I think it's silly and now coming back to it over a decade later and rereading it properly um, I completely agree with your points it's not a dislike it's definitely a fascination with the play itself and like those plot holes that you mentioned so something that really stuck out for me when I reread it was um the sudden appearance I think it was Friar John 
in yeah. the last act, he just turns yeah. up and he's like, oh, this is why Romeo yeah. didn't find out because of A, B and C. And it's just like, oh, okay, here's why he didn't find out. And I couldn't think that, of anything else. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. Although our, our current predicament makes that beat in the play really interesting. When he wrote Romeo and Juliet, the theatres had been closed for an extended period because of the plague. And so everybody in that audience knew what what isolating in place was, yes. and so um, most of the time, and I think that beat will make it will, will will be heard very differently by our audiences. But I certainly know when the last time I did it, the audiences don't hear it. Is that he gets given the letter to to explain to Romeo in Mantua what's going on? He he is visiting some poor people on the way. They have plague in the house, so someone comes around and boards up the door and mm. so he can't go and so mm. he's stuck there for 24 hours and then he goes back to the fire and says i've only just been released here's your letter yeah. so it is convenient but it's actually very topical again it's an accident it's it's, it's an absolute action now that said when romeo when um when what's his name who's the guy that visits him in mantua Again, he only appears then. Um, it might be a Balthazar. Most people cast Benvolio in that role. But in yeah, the, I was going to say Benvolio, yeah. But, but it's not normally. You just do that because you, don't wanna, you just want to make it easier. But mm. he's actually someone who Romeo doesn't really know. And he turns up. Romeo spends no time interrogating that. He's just like, oh, she's dead. Oh, that's happened. Oh, he believes it. He goes and gets the poison. He doesn't investigate the body. Like, mm. I completely understand the, the idea of the, of the kind of realism in it. And I certainly think when you're 15 that all of that stuff would just be absurd. Yeah. But I partly think sometimes that's to do with the way it's taught, is that, is that we need to see it as a work of art. For Shakespeare's audience, it would have felt quite real because, oh, because yeah. they would have understood this story of the, of the, um, of the lovers who, who end up dead. They would have seen it from the myths. They would have understood it from Ovid and from Greek myth. The, the guys writing the novellas, which he based the play on, mm. were trying to ground it in some kind of reality. And that's what the Renaissance did, is they took these myths and they said, this could be your neighbours. And I think they would have seen Romeo and Juliet as, as what we would see as kind of a nat naturalistic compared with the Greek myths. Mm. But we, of course, look at this work and go, well, that's not real that's at all. The, it's yeah. a play. All the plays he writes during this two-year period are all written in verse. Um, the closest plays to it are Richard II, which is a history play, and, of course, mm. Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. which I can't help but think he wrote after Romeo and Juliet because the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, the, the mechanicals put on a production of Pyramus and Thisbe, which is a Romeo and Juliet story yeah. and uh, from Ovid. Um, and they would have understood, and I think Shakespeare is lampooning his own play in that, in that moment and, and having fun. It's going, well, I, you, last week you saw it as a tragedy. Now I'm going to show you what it's yeah, like as a comedy. A comedy. Yeah, I do have some questions why maybe he didn't bring over the lion from that play into Romeo yeah. Juliet. That would have <laughs> maybe added missing. it to that's, You're right. the lion. The lion. Where's the, the lion? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, what you um, touched on before, obviously the whole reasoning behind the delay in the letter being the plague, that would be a very fascinating thing to revisit in a hopefully post-COVID theatre yeah. environment. It would be very interesting to see if directors going forward with this story sort of 
interpret it or bring that sort of topic that's now become relevant yeah. again to us into that story. So that's very interesting yeah. to think about as well. Yeah, often that often directors find ways around actually physically having fried John there, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But I do think, I mean, and I think this is a really good example, Jess, of what, what's happened over 400 years is that each generation finds different things in the plays. And this is a kind of, we're witnessing it now, is that Romeo and Juliet will be a different play after COVID. Mm. than it was before just because and in fact a lot of Shakespeare plays that deal with the plague or, or around the plague we will have an experience of what it was like to suddenly be isolated or, mm. or suddenly have to shut the theatres down or that, that what that that feeling in the culture is like we've now viscerally got an understanding of that. That's going to be so fascinating when the theatres open up again and maybe even Bell Shakespeare will revisit that in time I'm not sure what your plans are going to be. We but certainly that will be, it's, oh, on the, it's on the schedule be, oh. it's on the schedule that will be you know because so you, you, you're not alone so, so there's a my my colleague James who's the associate director him and my other colleague Hugh they both work in education they, they've done they're doing a little YouTube thing which basically just goes through all of the reasons that Romeo and Juliet is a really annoying play <laughs> And in fact, and we do the play in some form in schools or in theatres every year because because it, it's so widely studied, um, and we really kind of care about it. But our head of education, she's got a long list of problems that she's got with the play. Like there's lots of issues, but it's whether you see them as. Um, the more time you spend with Shakespeare, the more you realise these are not mistakes. They open up the play to all sorts of readings. Why is this a cultural touch point when there's so many problems with this? And it's not, it, you know, I really think it should be taught not about, not as, it should be taught as a play that interrogates romance. It's not a romantic play. Mm, I absolutely agree. And I think that's what I was picking up on as a teenager as well, because on top of that, being in a high school English class, looking at this play, I went to an all girls school. So yeah. all the girls were like swooning over the story and thought it was so romantic. And I just remember sitting there yeah. being like, have we read the same play? What's going on guys? Yeah. And then at yeah. the Baz Luhrmann film on top of that, watching that in class and everyone's crying. And, and I'm just like, Oh boy, <laughs> get, get me out of here. <laughs> oh, that's going to be another episode actually the covering of that <laughs> well, you have to. It's huge that oh, film. And Boy, a generation, oh. a generation of kids who are obsessed with that film. I'd love to know more about. Um, so, obviously, I know quite a bit about Bell Shakespeare. That was very much a touch point for high school English from yeah. year seven all the way up to year twelve. But in case um, anyone listening doesn't know Bell Shakespeare, could you talk about? sort of their mission, what they're all about, like what they're trying to bring to modern audiences? The mission has, has, has been the same. So this is our 30th year of operation. And so it started 30 years ago when John Bell, he, he had already run a number of companies and he was 50 at the time. And he had, had a, a, a donor who, who had followed his career for a long, long time say to him, I've got a little bit of money. I, I would really like to support you know, Shakespeare in Australia, what, what, you know, should I set up a foundation or what should I, what should I do? And John said, the best thing we could do is actually start a, a company that's dedicated to Shakespeare. He felt that Shakespeare should be for everybody. It shouldn't just be for people in the centre of Sydney, that it should be for regional um, and remote areas and that, and that the mission should be um, making it as egalitarian as possible and for everybody. That, it, mm. that, of course, when he grew up, English people used to come out here and teach us how to do the 
Shakespeare and the Australian actors weren't necessarily doing it in the 50s and 60s. And so his life goal, as well as doing new Australian work, was always about making Shakespeare an Australian experience and speaking with an Australian voice and, and, and dedicating to get it all around the country. That's where I, I started with the company was in 1996, where he where we first started the national tour. So before that, we'd done capital cities, but then we created a show that could do small towns and be more nimble to get around. And so that's been now going for 21, 22 years where we, we go to 30 venues a year with a slightly smaller show than the one that does the capital cities. The other part of the company that, that makes it a little unlike other theatre companies is that education right from mm. the first year has been sort of half the business. Mm. So the idea that, that, that we take on the teaching and the kind of performing of particularly the performing he was always if we can get three or four actors into a school to do scenes in front of students rather than sitting around with their books at their desk then we're automatically kind of bringing this stuff to life that is such a strong vision and a vision i've seen as well because i have very fond memories of um, bell shakespeare coming to my school and right. doing macbeth i believe i was in year 10 at the time and it was like you said four to five actors came in to do a little condensed version of macbeth and, yep. I, and i was sat in the front row because i was so excited <laughs> but then whoever was playing macbeth during one of his monologues decided to get really excited and screamed in my face. <laughs> and I just remember he came up to me afterwards and apologised. He's just like, I was just so in the moment. I'm so sorry. I'm like, I got it. <laughs> I really got it. <laughs> uh, at least, at least oh. he apologised. That's not yes. cool. <laughs> he was, he was, it, was, it was the Scottish play. He, it was very much in the moment. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I do have very fun memories with Bell Shakespeare. It's a really fantastic thing. And lots of Australian high school students, I think, are very lucky to get a little taste of what Bell Shakespeare Well, there'd, probably, there'd be three million or something of them now. Wow. That it's is, a lot. Oh, so it's, a, it's a generation and a half of, of students have, have is, had them visit. So like, it's true. a big deal. It's like, oh you know, between kind of it's like 60 or 60 to 80,000 students and teachers a year with all over the country and they do it for eight or nine months but mm -hmm. now what we've experienced with all because we've had to do so much stuff digitally yeah i'm hoping if, if and when the world gets back to normal we'll be able to add what we've learned with that and we'll be able to get even further what I was also really interested in, um, you worked on a production of um, actually a, a play that I've come to love in later years, Coriolanus with Stephen Burkov. I was really interested to talk about that. Yeah, he was a hero of mine when I was at university. Oh, wow. um, and so that first meeting I had with John was was like one of the great meetings of my life because I would mm. just come out of drama school. I was 25. So it was kind of a dream meeting. Um, but mm. The Burkhoff thing was very exciting because I, I hadn't seen original Burkhoffs because I grew up in New Zealand, but I'd seen mm. people doing Burkhoff plays. So, so Steve had done the play the production a number of times he had done it in london where he himself had played coriolanus and the year before he had done it in new york with christopher walken playing coriolanus oh, wow. so then he came here and he did it with john bell um playing coriolanus and it was it was really interesting it was really interesting mm -hmm. i learned an awful lot now what i learned from 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 burkoff he basically meets everybody and then he gets on the floor and he starts that the mm. whole thing is about action it's about doing 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 there's actually not mm. that much chat it's all about the physical and about finding things with that becomes a very autocratic sensibility like mm. he he's in charge and he's workshopping with your body in space and you have to give over to that and what oh, wow. he creates is amazing but it's it's not as um 
was certainly in, in our experience, it was not a lot of back and forth necessarily. Not that he would have a problem if you stopped and asked a question, but mm. pretty much it's set up to make, 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 make. Mm. So the energy in the room and the efficiency in a room and the ideas generation was pretty exceptional. And, wow. and that production was extraordinary. It was a, it's a, I'll never forget it. It was, it was pretty amazing. Oh, I would have loved to have seen it if only I wasn't what, two years old? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but that's oh, so fascinating. I was really interested to know if that experience had impacted you in any way in terms of your sort of directing style. But for what it sounds like, Literally. it's not really your kind of... No, no, it, it, hasn't, it, didn't, it didn't influence the way that I communicated or directed, but it influenced... I was already very interested in physical in uh, mm. uh, physical theatre and a lot of my work, my physical work is quite different from that, more naturalistic than Burkhoff. Mm. Um, but I was, I was extremely excited about the way he married the, the physical with the, with the language and he's exceptionally good on language. He was very good. He, whenever, you, whenever you did ask him a question about the verse and about the, the text, he really knew what he was talking about. Yeah, and that's yeah. sort of much made in heaven for Shakespeare, I can, I can imagine. I think so. I think mm. so. I think we sometimes forget because of the, the English have taught us that Shakespeare happens from the shoulders up, is that for Shakespeare, Shakespeare's would have been very physical the way they performed and the way they operated on the globe stage mm. would have been very, very physical. Um, mm. and, it, and, um, and I think it, it, became, it became a bit staid and I think people like, like, like Burkhoff really wanted to kind of get the, get the, kind of, um, get the physical back into the language. Mm, yeah, Shakespeare definitely requires flexibility. And I remember when studying Shakespeare, there was a lot of talk about how it was hand in hand with... Italian Commedia dell'arte having yep. a very strong presence on a stage. Yep. So, yep, yeah, get, let's get some flexibility back and get back into Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move That's around. Right. <laughs> I'm really interested to touch on as well. Um, obviously, like I said before, you directed Romeo and Juliet in 2016. So, what was the one thing that you wanted to do with this production to? make it yours or make it different. So that was the first year as I took over as sole artistic director. And, mm. and what this, this company has been really dedicated to very contemporary productions. Mm. Um, and that's great. I really support that and, and most of my workers as well. But I thought it might be fun to do a period Romeo and Juliet. And so mm -hmm. that, that production was all an Elizabethan costume, which is kind of anathema to John's vision. But I yeah. also felt that I started to talk to people of my generation and particularly younger friends of mine. Uh, when I was at the Melbourne Theatre Company and I knew I was coming to Bell Shakespeare, I was talking to a lots, of, lots of friends of mine who were 10 or 15 years younger. And of course, they had never seen a period Shakespeare. Mm. So of course, John had only ever seen period and the idea of contemporary was unusual. Now, if you were 20 or 30, the idea of contemporary is absolutely normal and mm. the period thing would be interesting yeah and so of course there's a lot of fantasy happening in the in the in the 2010s and all sorts of stuff on television where people are really enjoying the fantasy of that that kind of time shift so i thought it would be fun to do that and and i thought if any play would really work with that it would be romeo and juliet mm -hmm. we kind of return some of the sort of mythic quality and they sort of own the fact that it's a that it's a very old and, and beloved play, but I hoped with that we'd also be able to put some edges on it. It had a sort of meta set, so, so it had the scaffolding that was holding up an old theatre, and so the balcony was kind of like a theatre balcony. So it sort of had a, a messery kind of thing to it, and you could see the lights and stuff. 
but I have myself had kind of mixed mixed feelings about it. I, I, I think we didn't go far enough. It was possibly a little too soft and and, and a bit romantic at times, and, okay. and wasn't edgier. I, I think we. I think when we finished with the costumes, they were too much like costumes and we should have really committed to mm. making them down and dirty and taking people into a completely immersive world mm. and maybe not actually made it meta-theatrical. My memory is that it was it's a bit squishy in my head. Oh, that said, there were some fantastic performances and I loved making it and I was really kind of intrigued by the whole experience. Mm. But I think I should have gone, I should have gone harder at it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask as well. If you could go back and change anything, you would definitely make it a bit edgier, a bit harder. Well, I think it's exactly what we're talking about. I, th- I think an acknowledged, because the relationship between the two of them is romantic, like it's beautiful that, they, that these two characters meet and they share a perfect sonnet between them, that, that Shakespeare takes this poetic form and shows that they're immediately in sync. The play is steeped in, in an idea that this is going to end badly, that this mm. is going to, that this thing is, is, going, is going to be catastrophic at the end of it. And I, and I find that, um, in a literary sense, um, really evocative, and I love that. The first half is full of comedy, and as I say, it's like a comedy. It could absolutely be a comedy. But then suddenly, right in the middle, someone gets killed, and it's a young person. And Shakespeare's obsessed with this idea that the young people die. The same thing happens in Hamlet. Is that the young people are dying because of the feud of the older people. The, mm. the corruption of the older people gets the young people dead. The families resolve their feud because of the kind of sacrifice of these two young people. Mm. There is actually a, a reckoning um, at the end, which is which is which is beautiful. But it it comes at the expense of these young people who really, if they had probably said to their parents, "This is what we want to do," the parents probably would have come round to it. Like, like yeah, famously, Mister Capulet says, "I think Romeo's a good guy at the start." That's what but, I was going to say. Yeah, he says like, like he's he's a good kid. Like, but. 
a good guy. Yeah. He's all right. Yeah. You know, but, but Tybalt has, has, like, again, again, this, I think this is very true, is Tybalt has absorbed the feud deeper than his family. Mm. The young person has kind of generationally taken on the feud and wants to be the the big man on on campus and so yeah. that's where the kind of violence came from and this is where Shakespeare's really interesting is he's really good at identifying the way societies work and where the kind of fault lines in a society are uh, and, the, and the sacrifice of the young people I think he's absolutely fascinated about. It's also worth noting is that, that the novella that Shakespeare based it on also has a prologue mm. and in the prologue of the Arthur Brooke novella he kind of suggests that this this story is a lesson to young people to listen to your parents. Oh. Right? And and you do encounter this sometimes. People go, no, no, Roman Juliet's a cautionary tale is that you should listen to your parents and 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 love is the enemy of of uh, an ordered and rational society. Mm. Whereas Shakespeare, and I don't think I don't think he entirely embraces this. I think Shakespeare's full of ambiguity and you never entirely know what he's mm. thinking. But he of course backs the kids. Like if he's on, if he's on anyone's side, he's on the kids' side, and he Absolutely. looks at the he looks at the parents very harshly. That said, the drug that is eros, the drug that is love, is very dangerous. Mm. And one of the reasons we need our kids to talk to us about these feelings is because if you pretend they're not happening, then people go off in all sorts of directions. Like if you, you know, if you just if you just put a dam up. You will pretend like it's not there, yeah. then bad things happen. And, and that's why when I have some people come saying, oh, the suicide's difficult and we're showing young people, you know, you need to be, could be triggering people. And my argument is, no, this, this is a discussion point, this play. We should be having these discussions with young people mm. and we should be talking about these things because pretending they're not happening and that young people aren't having these feelings, like 15-year-old Jess, of course, thought it was kind of <laughs> rubbish, but you were describing some of your classmates who were absolutely swept really? up mm. in the idea of mm. meeting a guy and, and that needs to be discussed because you don't want to bottle that stuff up. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that is a perspective I should have sort of recognised when I was rereading it. That's such a good point. It's all about the kids and not having their feelings checked in with their parents and the older people ultimately being the downfall of the young again that's also extremely relevant in these times that's yeah absolutely the the saddest the saddest scene in Romeo and Juliet is when um is when the parents go to her and say um there's been all this death what this what the what the family in the town need now is a wedding and so initially they had said, Paris, you can woo Juliet, but she's at least two, three years away from being up in our marriage. Mm. But the, the, the time pressure, so not only is the story compressed, so the novella is over nine months and Shakespeare mm. comes along and goes, what if it was over four days? Like that's the genius of the playwright. Yeah. He puts a clock on the play and he puts pressure on the play. Mm. And that's why the accidents happen because everybody's rushing. Now, they wouldn't have necess- they probably wouldn't have had to get married necessarily that night if it wasn't under under you know under pressure yeah. or a feeling that they couldn't talk to anyone about it. But the saddest scene is when they come to her and they say, You have to get married. And um, and she says, No, don't make me do it. And the mm-hmm. father goes completely ballistic at her. Yeah. He thinks like he's he's a bully. He's a mm. bully and he's and he's a patriarch. Mm. but he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah, he exactly. thinks that the father's job is to is to control the kids because they don't know any better. He 
thinks he's doing the right thing. Mm. He kind of is. If she did turn around and go, look, I'm going to choose my father over this guy I've just met, the play also ends in a different way. Like, mm. that's where, the, that's where the, um, Shakespeare complicates the story. He doesn't, he doesn't simplify it, he complicates it. I think the funny thing about that play is that you're left kind of, it's a kind of messy feeling. A lot of the classical plays, and Shakespeare incorporates this, is how does a society marry the, the innate violence and aggression and competitiveness, also its innate um, love, yeah. irrational feelings, you know, all, all the kind of messy stuff. You know, they're not, they're not simple. It's not just love and hate and reason. It's much more complicated than that. But the, 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 the plays that the Shakespeare's writing are, are all really about societies because a society is a, is a complicated beast and, mm-hmm. and they're imperfect. And no matter what system of government he explores, he's constantly going, well, this bit's quite good for this, but then you've got this bit, doesn't kind of work. And I think that, that, that even in Romeo and Juliet, it's about that, that society where the old people think, I have to control the young people and that will temper the violence and the love. It's not just about two people with an incredible love who are willing to die for their love. That's not the place for much, mm. much more complicated than that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a shame in a way that that's, that's still sort of that idea that it's a one big love story and it's so romantic. That's sort of the general idea that's in like the social conscience when people think of Romeo and Juliet. They really should be thinking about all of those points of the struggle of society and the old leading the young down the wrong paths and lack mm-hmm. of communication. That's, those should be the first things that come into your head when you think. Yeah, about I think so. It's, and it's interesting as a society that we don't, and maybe it mm. is our need for romance or our need for these kind of myths. Yes. That relationship is extraordinary in the way they talk together. And, 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 and to go back to my initial point about Shakespeare more generally is that Romeo is the perfect example of the Shakespearean young man is mm. that he's in love with love. And at the start, what you what you get is a moony, pathetic crybaby who's all about <laughs> Rosaline and well, you know, and everybody around him distrusts him. They all distrust mm. him. They think that he they they think that he's in love with love and they mm. think he's self-indulgent, and he is. Absolutely. And then he meets Juliet and the balcony scene, what the balcony scene's about is Juliet teaches him to shut up and just be. Stop talking and 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 projecting and making oaths just be just be and if you're serious we you need to marry me if you're serious now we don't have to take those things as some kind of reality the bigger idea i think is much more interesting for young people to learn is that she is actually very grounded she she understands herself she has an amazing soliloquy where she talks about um, that she knows she's going to have sex that night and mm. she's afraid and she doesn't know if she's going to do it right but at the same mm. time she's excited and this whole soliloquy should be a conversation with her mother or with yeah. the nurse like it's sad it really, really makes me makes it i get very moved by it is that there's so many things in this like this young woman is all alone she's mm-hmm. super bright juliet's one of the brightest characters in shakespeare and she's going to turn this guy into into a real boy and I think that's, that, and that's its interest, I think. Mm. That, that's its interest. Is it's not like one of those plays where you go, because it's actually closer to Hamlet than Macbeth. There's a character that does a series of actions that destroys a society and then society destroys that 
person, that person. right? That's a, that's a much yeah. simpler, simpler kind of arc. And at the end of it, you know what you feel about. There's a kind of cathartic feeling. Mm. But Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet are about all of the young people dying for the sins of the, of the parents. Of the old. Oh and gosh, particularly, yeah. particularly the fathers, mm. um, particularly the men. And that leaves you like the, the sadness or whatever the feeling is, is I think deeply felt because you can't quite, there's no one thing, you know, it's no one thing to blame. It's like a shark attack. It's mm. kind of immoral in some ways, you know, amoral. You be careful what you do because this over thing over here is going to happen because of these actions. Yeah, exactly. And you can't blame the shark because the shark's just in its territory. You were just there, wrong place, wrong time. It's their nature. It is their nature. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is the shark of the sea. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously with um, shut shut down part two happening in Melbourne and across Australia at the moment, um, people can't go to theatres. Is there anything you would like to suggest people to pursue or look into while we're waiting for theatres to go back? Well, I've I've got a conflicted relationship with that because I'm not actually a huge fan of, digital theatre myself. Yes, that is a major conversation happening. Yeah, like, like I, of course, watch a lot of it because it's really good to see stuff from overseas that I can't get to. And, and over mm. the years, I've really enjoyed that as a, um, as a kind of resource. It, to me, the live experience is, is, is everything. Absolutely. Um, and so it's not something I've been doing. Over the last few months, I've probably watched less digital theatre than the previous three months when, right. it, you know, when it wasn't yeah. a thing. Yeah. Just because it makes me feel... Um, more of a loss. I'm really interested in what this time's going to teach us, though, and whether, in fact, it will kind of sharpen our desire when we're allowed to to be in a collective experience. Mm. Um, it could go either way. People might go, you know what, I don't miss it at all. Or people are like, you know, I really do miss that collective experience and I'm going to mm. dedicate myself more to going out and being part of that. Yeah, well, I think if you're going to watch the films, then you've got to go, see, I love the Kurosawa films. And so I think oh, that Ran, yeah. which is his version of King Lear, and Throne of Blood, which is his version of Macbeth, are kind of amazing. And I mm. think that... Um, I think that's really interesting, Kurosawa's take on Shakespeare, and it's, it's obviously completely kind of fresh and interesting. And I really love that stuff. Mm, well, I'm currently a, well, almost 25-year-old, and I thought I knew everything, and I clearly don't, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the first step to wisdom. <laughs> exactly. But it should be, just before we go, we should say, I mean, this yep. is a part, of the, part of the interest that we teach it to young people is that it's one of the most overtly sexual plays, it's probably the most mm, in Shakespeare. Totally. That the boys particularly, their talk is absolutely filthy. Like, it's, like a lot of those illusions don't make sense to us anymore, but it's a filthy play. It's really a play about young people, particularly the boys, who are almost pornographic in their attitudes towards sex. And that's why Romeo can't talk to his friends, is that they, mm. they are so... Um, they think he's self-indulgent, but he also thinks that they're callous and uncaring. Yeah, and there's exactly. a mid-ground between the two of them. And certainly after he meets Juliet, he's, he doesn't tell his friends about her. And yeah. that's, where the, that's where the first fight comes from, is that they don't know why he won't fight. Mm. Whereas if he had said to them, I'm actually in love with his cousin... Yeah. Something, again, play would be a different play. The whole point of this podcast, initially the podcast was about me disliking the play or not liking it very much at all. But (laughs) like these perspectives, I'm really glad I'm getting to talk to people like you as well, because these are perspectives that I never would have considered. And I'm, 
it's mm. making me look at the play in a completely different light, which I really appreciate and thank you for. But um, yeah, we might wrap up because the internet's obviously not being our friend today. Right. But right. Yeah, yeah, I'll um, sure. I'll let lovely you know. to talk to you, Jess. Lovely to talk to you too. Thank you so so much. I told you this was going to be a special one. I have to credit and thank Peter entirely, not just for presenting different perspectives on the play, but for really focusing in on those issues of social power play and lack of communication between the old and the young, sexism, patriarchy, toxic masculinity, and that maybe there's more to Juliet than I might be giving her credit for? Maybe? Well, these are all topics that you bet are going to be covered down the line. Going into this, I genuinely haven't been sure how or if my mind would completely change, but there are more facets and angles that need to be looked at than I thought, and I'm not mad about that. I'll be including links in the show notes for everything we touched on today, including the Bell Shakespeare website where you can find their socials and all sorts of resources from their past shows, the educational work they do in the urban and regional communities of Australia, especially with underfunded schools and their teachers. The company is currently open to donations to help them continue the work they've been doing for the past 30 years, so please head over to Bell Shakespeare if you'd like to send some support their way. I'll also include a link to Kurosawa's filmography in case you'd like to check out those awesome film suggestions. As much as we all want to re-watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine for the 50th time in a row, I say there's nothing wrong with mixing things up in isolation with some timeless foreign cinema. And yes, after that we can go back to Standing Rosa. Unfortunately, I completely forgot to get a Shakespearean insult from Peter, but I think during this episode he dropped a character assassination gem, which I will include in my closing today. That's all for this episode, and thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you that does. Please feel free to reach out or leave reviews. That lets me know how you're feeling about the show, or if you have some genuine feedback, don't be shy. Also, that will boost the show into more people's suggestions, so let it out. Let's get some more people biting their thumbs. No, that doesn't sound weird. Shut up. But until next time, stay safe out there on the world of the stage, and in the words of Peter Evans, Watch out for moony, pathetic crybabies. I'm watching you, Romeo. Thank you for listening to Bite Your Thumb. Intro and outro music is Minstrel Guild by Kevin McCloyd. You can follow Bite Your Thumb on Instagram at biteyourthumbpod, and for any questions, inquiries, or a sonnet, you can shoot us an email at biteyourthumbpod at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.